He was a rich man. And as he was a young man, I think we can be fairly certain, for there were no national lotteries in the first century, that his wealth was inherited. But any thinking person, and he was certainly that, knew that there were more valuable things than wealth which a person might inherit or fail to inherit. In which case all the wealth in the world would prove worthless for it was not legal tender in the world to come. Hence his eagerness to meet Jesus, the new teacher whom everyone was talking about. So eager in fact that he's the only one recorded to have run to meet Jesus. And falling on his knees, he asked him the question, the burning question that was in his mind. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer Jesus gave didn't seem very radical or revolutionary. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your father and your mother. Unlike most people today, as illustrated by our interviews in Princess Street, which we showed last week, this young man knew the Ten Commandments. And unlike almost all of us, he had kept them since the age when he first became aware of them. He was not boasting or exaggerating when he said to Jesus, All these I've kept since I was a boy. Surely you think such a young moral man will inherit eternal life, will qualify for heaven. That's what you'd expect. That's what everybody else listening expected. Except Jesus. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, Come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Now the question to ask is, was this fair? Was Jesus not adding more conditions than God for getting into heaven? Hadn't this young man actually kept the Ten Commandments? No, for his wealth had become his God. He loved his wealth more than he loved his God. And God would tolerate no rivals. He had broken the first and greatest commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And rather than his wealth being a mark of God's favour, as the Jews currently believed, it was in fact an obstacle which barred him from getting into heaven, as Jesus goes on to explain. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. No wonder the hearers are amazed and ask, Who then can be saved? If this young, morally upright young man can't make it into heaven, who can? And Jesus says there is only one way, one solution. Jesus replied, what is impossible with men 
is possible with God. And what is impossible with men and women is to keep the Ten Commandments. And nowhere is this universal failure more evident than in the first commandment, which is our subject this morning as we begin our series, following the introduction last week, into the Ten Commandments. No other gods. Exodus 20 verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. We're going to look at that this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to page 78. If it's a pew Bible, it's not a pew Bible, it's very easy to find. Start with Genesis and Exodus comes immediately afterwards. And as we look at this commandment together, in fact as we look at all of the commandments one by one, we'll discover that they not only show us what is impossible with man, but they also drive us to seek a solution outside of ourselves. What is possible with God. And then and only then will we be willing and able to keep the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, quite simply, I want to focus on three aspects of this commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's the first one. A unique God. The people of Israel to whom these commandments were given lived in a world of many gods. They'd spent generations living in Egypt, the superpower of the day, in which all sorts of gods were worshipped, represented by the heavenly bodies, sun, moon, stars, animals, human incarnations like their own rulers, the pharaohs. You can still see the temples and images, or the remains of them, in Egypt today. But when these Ten Commandments were given, these gods were the reality. Hundreds of thousands of people worshipped them. And if success were anything to go by, they were the true gods for their worshippers, the Egyptians, were the top dogs in the whole world. They ruled the world and the people of Egypt were a slave race. But now these slaves had been emancipated. They were on a journey to a promised land led by Moses. But they, or their children, for the journey took longer than it should have done, were to discover that the land they were going to, the land of Canaan, was not only a land flowing with milk and honey, but was a land overflowing with gods of every imaginable kind. The Canaanites offered multiple choice religion. And you could tick all the boxes if you wanted. There were gods that promised wealth. Gods that promise harvest, good harvest. Gods that promise you lots of children. Gods that promise you success in business or anything you needed. And add to this a heady spice of colourful ritual and sexual licence and their wares seemed almost irresistible. And it was into this multi-faith, polytheistic environment of the gods of Egypt and Canaan that the Lord speaks to his people and says... I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. In this world of many gods, Egyptian and Canaanite, the people of Israel are to worship one God, not many. There's been a lot of debate among scholars as to whether this first commandment teaches what is called monotheism, that is, the belief in only one God. Uh, later scriptures affirm that truth. For example, Psalm 96 says, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations, they're idols. 
but the Lord made the heavens. However, the emphasis of this first commandment is not so much theological, but practical. Not what the Israelites were to believe, but what they were to do. In a world in which the existence of all sorts of gods seemed self-evident, they were to worship only the Lord their God. Now we face the same practical challenge today. Few of us, if any, believe in the gods of Egypt and Canaan. They're interested tourists and documentary makers only. But we do worship other gods that occupy the place that God should have in our lives. Oh, we might never claim verbally that money, power, sex, ambition, family or anything else were gods. But nonetheless, they are gods which are worshipped in our society and at a functional level they serve as gods. I should have added sport to that. Probably certainly added sport after the celebrations, after winning few cricket matches, but that was good anyway, but uh, interesting, isn't it? Now, to us, the one true God says, you shall have no other gods before me. But there is a second challenge that arises out of this, and I want you to notice it's very important. Concerning the God who gives this commandment, the people of Israel are not only to worship the one God, not many, they're to worship the one Lord, not any. It's not as though God says among all the gods that are on offer, they were to pick one and stick with him or her. No, they were to worship the one God who is described as the Lord your God. The word God and gods is the general word used for deity or deities of any kind. But the word Lord is a special name by which God revealed himself to these people, the people of Israel. If you know the story of the Bible, when God called Moses to go back to Egypt, where he'd grown up as a prince, and to deliver his people, Moses had a pragmatic problem. How will they believe me? This is what he said to God. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I tell them? Notice God's answer. This is a very important scripture. Exodus 3 verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you just say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. The name by which God revealed himself as the one true God to the people of Israel through Moses. His name, he says, is I am. It's a very interesting word. No one is quite sure what it means. It's probably to do with the verb to be. The, he is the eternally existent God, the one who was and is and is to come. In fact, the name became so sacred to the people of Israel that no one dared pronounce it. It's actually in Hebrew, four letters. In sort of English, it's Y-H-W-H. And no one knew how to pronounce it. It's probably pronounced Yahweh or something like that. In the old English versions, it was anglicised and called Jehovah. If you ever look at the Bible, you, probably never, you may not, not have noticed this, but to tell you when it's just an ordinary Lord or the Lord, it's always capitalised in our English Bibles, in the NIV, certainly. Look at uh, verse 1 again um, of Exodus 20. You'll see it there. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord. Can you see that Lord there is in capital letters? 
This unique God is the Lord. The one who has revealed himself in a particular way to a particular people. Now again, this has enormous implications for our current thinking today. Seen in what is called pluralism. That people of all religions worship basically the same God under different names. You find politicians constantly talk about this in relation to Christianity and Islam. They say, well, we worship God and they call him Allah, but we're all talking about the same God. But the one who gives the Ten Commandments does not say to Moses, oh, tell the people, I am the one the Egyptians call Ra, but you are to call me Lord. No, he says literally, specifically, the literal translation is, I am Yahweh, no other gods before my face. And this is seen even more explicitly when we come to the New Testament and the person of Jesus whom we've been singing about. Why did Jesus arouse such fierce opposition when he was on earth? It wasn't what he did so much. It's what he said and what he claimed for himself. He claimed to be the Lord Jesus. On one significant occasion, he was in debate with some of the Jewish religious leaders. He constantly had these debates with them. And during the course of the conversation, this is recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus turned to them and said, Abraham, the father of Israel, whom they revered, he said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Can you imagine this? This is a couple of thousand years on. It says, Abraham rejoiced about my day. He saw it and he was glad. Well, the Jewish religious leaders gave the answer you'd expect. They said, you're not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham. Now notice the answer that Jesus gave. John 8:58. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born... I am. You can read that and not understand it, but if you're a Jew, you'd see it immediately. It would hit between the eyes. Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, Yahweh, I am. No wonder we read it. This they picked up stones to stone him to death, but he hid himself and slipped away in the temple grounds. Now, if the claims that Christians make about Jesus are not true, then we as Christians, if you claim to be a Christian, we are guilty of breaking the first commandment. But if they are true, if Jesus is Lord, if as we read in Hebrews 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, if as Paul writes in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, and God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him, then not to worship Jesus is to break the first commandment. Jesus is that important. The Lord is the unique God who has revealed himself to the people of Israel and has revealed himself fully and finally in human flesh in the person of his son, Jesus. That's the first thing, a unique God. Notice the second thing that arises out of the first commandment. Secondly, an exclusive relationship. Look again, at, if you have the Bible in front of you, at the verse, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. If you've got good eyesight, you'll see the word before. There's a little, um, a little uh, letter A, and there's a footnote that says, You shall have no other gods besides me. It can mean either thing. The literal translation in Hebrew is, You shall have no other gods 
before my face. In the IVP commentary on Exodus, Alan Cole writes, this slightly unusual phrase seems also to be used of taking a second wife while the first wife is still alive. Such a use, a breach of an exclusive personal relationship, would explain the meaning here. It then links with the description later on in verse 5 of God as being a jealous God. Now, I mentioned last week, if you just type in Ten Commandments in Google, if you've got a computer, and hit Ten Commandments, you'll be here the next week and the week after and the month after reading all the references to the Ten Commandments on the internet. And there is a vociferous, a vociferous anti-Ten Commandments, I'm going to call it a movement, but feeling among so many people claiming that the God of the Bible is some kind of cosmic bully who demands the craven obedience of his followers or else. But that is not the God described in either the Old or the New Testament. The Ten Commandments are not addressed, notice, to everyone but to the people of Israel who are in a special relationship with the Lord, their God, because of what he has done for them. The Lord is their saviour. Look what it says, the preface to the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God says, we're in a special relationship. Out of all the people on the earth, I've brought you into my family. I've rescued you from slavery. You belong to me, you're my people. You're in an intimate, exclusive relationship with me. And now he says, I give you these Ten Commandments because they're the maker's instructions for a happy life, for a happy nation. They're the best thing for you. They're the best I can do for you. You see, the gods of Egypt, representing state religion, enforce worship. The gods of Canaan, representing market religion, offered inducements to those who would worship them. But the God of Israel appeals for obedience on the basis that he has redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt and set them free to be his people, to love him, to worship him and to keep his commandments. So there should be a grateful response. And the first response that God expects of his people, who now belong to them, belong to him, is an undivided allegiance. One writer suggests it could also be translated, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods as rivals before me. Now, if you say that's unreasonable, let me ask you another question. Are you married? What's the connection, you say? Well, I've married lots of people in this church, many of them here this morning. Thankfully, still here and married. And when you get married, you say, will you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Will you... Love her, comfort her, and forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto her for as long as you both shall live. And she freely, voluntarily, if she will not freely and voluntarily say, I will, then I shouldn't be marrying them. It's never happened to me yet, but the important thing is the marriage preparation where you ask these questions beforehand. Are you prepared to exclusively devote yourself to that one person? Now, you might say, that's unreasonable. If you think it's unreasonable, don't get married. Now how much more so with the God, the one true God, the one who has loved us, given himself for us, redeemed us. Significantly in the Bible, if you know the Bible, marriage is one of the, perhaps the most common metaphor used to describe the relationship of the people of Israel with God. 
with their God. And tragically, tragically, adultery is the commonest term used to describe the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. That they constantly broke their vows to God and went off worshipping other gods, prostituting themselves before other gods. Uh, The best example of this, if you were here last year, we did our series on the minor prophets. The best example is the little prophecy of Hosea, in which Hosea acts out a parable with his unfaithful wife, which is a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. You see, the Lord says, it's a wonderful book, Hosea. If If you were away from God this morning and you think God has given up on you, read Hosea. It's such a wonderful book. The Lord says, I love you. I taught you to walk. You wandered away from me. I'm wooing you back. I'm bringing you back. He's calling his people back. That's the kind of God that we know, the kind of God that loves us. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Love me exclusively. And the Lord is deeply hurt by the way his people treat him. He sees the terrible consequences that follow when we worship other gods because they never come up with the goods that they promise. Maybe you're a Christian this morning and you, you know the Lord and yet you've wandered away from God. There are other gods now in your life. It might be your career. It might be a relationship. It might be money. It might be anything. And you, you, you know that you've wandered away because you think this thing offers you more than God can offer you. That's essentially what it's about, isn't it? I need to do this because God isn't fulfilling my needs. That's why people have affairs. And maybe this morning God is calling you back and saying, you need to come back to me. Look where it's got you. It's a law of diminishing returns. It doesn't satisfy, does it? And he says, the Lord promised through the prophets, he said, I'll one day send you a saviour who will rescue you, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And the Lord's response is to send his son Jesus the wonderful storyline of the Bible. God's people are unfaithful. God promises a solution. He sends a saviour. And now through Jesus, we can enter a personal relationship with this same Lord. That relationship for which we were made. That relationship which we lost when our first parents rebelled against God and went their own way. That relationship which God's people Israel turned their backs on. See, Jesus claimed that he and he alone is able to bring us into that relationship with God the Father. Those famous words in John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now again, we're back to exclusivity. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Is he really Lord, apart from whom there are no other lords? An exclusive way demands an exclusive relationship. And that's why when you become a Christian, it's not just a matter of saying, well, my life's in a mess and I'm really sad and I think Jesus will make me happier, which he will. Well, he'll give you joy. And you come to him and say, well, that's an option I'm choosing. No, when you become a Christian, you bow the knee, you admit your rebellion and you submit before him and you say, Jesus is Lord. Let's get away from this kind of feeling that there are two kinds of Christians, you know, those who are on minimum insurance, third party fire and theft, and those who are comprehensive, you know? You know, if you, you can accept Jesus as your saviour and you're in third party and you get into heaven just about, you know. But if you really want to be a committed Christian, you've worshipped Jesus as Lord and that's comprehensive. Listen, there is only one way. It's the comprehensive way of bowing the knee, saying Jesus is Lord. As we put our faith in him, we used to say when I was at Sunday school, faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I 
take him. No other. Forsaking all, I take him. Now we come to the third aspect of the commandment. A unique God, an exclusive relationship, and we've come to it already, a personal response. You shall have no other gods before me. This command, as we've seen, is addressed to those who've been redeemed, rescued by God, now belong to him, first to the people of Israel and then to every Christian. It demands a personal response from those who've been redeemed. Interestingly, Peter, in his first letter, writing to Gentile Christians, reminds them in the first chapter, he says, you've been redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We no longer belong to ourselves. When you've been redeemed, you've been bought back. You're under new ownership, under new management. And God is calling out a people for himself. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, very significant words that Peter uses in that chapter. You are a holy nation. You're a people belonging to God. He uses the words of the Old Testament to describe God's new people. His covenant community in Christ. But you become a member of that community personally by responding and bowing the knee to Jesus as Lord. Uh, The word you in the first commandment in Hebrew is in the singular. The commandment is given to the people to a redeemed nation. But it must be embraced by every individual in that community. It demands a personal response from every person. And our response then is to offer our lives in worship to God. And not to serve any other gods. Worship is not just what we do on Sunday. Or what we do when we get together. I hate these meetings to go to and say, now we'll have a time of worship. We're going to sing, okay? It's all worship. It's giving our lives and everything we are to God. It's rooted in every aspect of our lives. You shall have no other gods, he says, before my face then no area of our lives is excluded from the God who sees all. You see, sadly, you can have an affair if you're married and keep it a secret from your partner, from your spouse. But not before the God who sees all, before his face. He sees. He knows. And no area of our lives then is excluded from the Lordship of Christ. So, for example, writing to the Christians in Corinth, which was famous for sexual license, tempted by the God of sex, offered literally as part of the religion of the city. The Apostle Paul writes to him and he says, flee sexual immorality, don't do it, we'll come to it later, do not commit adultery and all the attendant sins that go with it. But he then roots it in the language of worship. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know, he says, why should you flee immorality? Sexual immorality. Why? Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know? Your body is not something out there and worship is something out here. No, he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with what? With your body. It's easy in church, you know, when we get together in a large congregation like this, and I love singing, and you know I love hymns, modern Ancient, the whole caboose, you know, as long as they're well written, there's good music and everything else. And it's wonderful to do that. And often they focus on worshipping God, and that's a great thing as well. But the challenge is whether what we do when we leave here tallies with what we sing. Does how we live tally with what we sing? If not, it is hypocrisy. 
And we need to confess it and seek God's forgiveness. Worship is not just about singing, it's about living. And the reality is seen in how we live our lives. Last week I recommended a couple of books to read on the Ten Commandments. Here's another one written by David Searle, who was recently the warden of Rutherford House. It's entitled, And Then There Were Nine. If you want to know what that means, you need to read the book. It's about the fourth commandment, for those who haven't worked it out. Um, And I find it very helpful. And it gives three practical tests to discover what comes first in your life. I encourage you to get the book. Let me just summarise what he says, and it's very helpful. First of all, he says, the money test. All right, you're a Christian this morning, all right? Just try and pay attention. We're getting towards the end, all right? It's been quite hard thinking, but just stay with me, all right? The money test. This is what he says. Jot down the main items of your monthly and annual spending. After you've accounted for the essentials of life, such as rent or mortgage, food, heat and clothing, see how you spend the rest. For example... Compare how much you spend on your holidays each year with what you give to the Lord's work. Because how we spend our money will tell us very accurately what or who is our God. Here's the second test, he says. The thought test. What is your waking thought and your last thought at night? Or if you have a couple of hours alone with yourself, nothing urgent to do, what do you think about? What do you plan In other words, what you worship. We are not what we think we are, what we think we are. Our religion is to do with our solitariness. And thirdly, he says, the time test. Do the same test on your time as your money and thought. See how you allocate your spare time and then collate the results of all three tests and discover very accurately some facts about yourself. Discover the identity of the God enthroned in your life. Now if you say, oh that's terribly legalistic and I have to do all those things, then you've missed the point. It's like the person saying, gosh it's my wife's birthday, it's my wife's birthday this week, I've got to buy her a present, oh dearie me, I can't really afford the money, but I suppose I better do it because I'm expected to do it, you know. And I suppose I better take her out for a meal, although I'd much prefer to be with my mates and uh, or watching the telly, but really, you know, well, if you think like that, <laughs> what kind of relationship is it? If you worship God, you do these things because you love him. You see, you remember what Jesus said to his followers, John 14, 15, he said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Interestingly, he then said, And if you keep my commandments, you remain in my love. And if you remain in his love, you'll love him and keep his commandments. And if you keep his commandments, the question is, do we love him? Do we love the Lord Jesus Christ? Love the Lord Jesus Christ. The amazing thing is that when we go our own way, we go after other gods, that he calls us back in love to himself. Now maybe God has spoken to you this morning about the first commandment. Maybe you're a Christian this morning and really if truth were told, if you did those tests, it's pretty salutary results, isn't it? What does God say? Does he say, well, I'm the Lord your God. You've blown it. That's you done. No, he woos you back and he says, I love you. I've redeemed you. You're mine. Bought with a price. He calls you back into an intimate relationship with himself. And this morning there is hope for those who have wandered away and broken the first commandment. Who failed to love the Lord, failed to love the Lord Jesus Christ.
but we're almost finished. We began with a running man, wealthy, influential, moral, who went away sad because the demands of Jesus were too great. Let me speak this in conclusion to those of you who are not yet Christians. Well, you're interested in Jesus, but alongside all sorts of other interests. And you're sort of weighing up the odds. And maybe this morning you think, gosh, what he's talking about is a pretty costly business, isn't it? Absolutely. Costs you nothing to become a Christian, everything to be a Christian. Is it worth it? Well, let me conclude with the story of another young man, also wealthy, influential and moral. However, unlike the first eager young man, he was an angry young man. He wanted to destroy Jesus, or at least the misguided followers of Jesus. Why? Because he believed they were guilty of blasphemy and worshipping a crucified criminal. On one of his hunting trips one day, going to the city of Damascus to arrest the followers of Jesus, he was struck down by a bright light that shone from the sky at noon. And he heard a voice saying to him, by name, in his own mother tongue, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now he also had a question. He said, who are you, Lord? Recognizing that the one who was speaking to him was the Lord. The one he worshipped, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Who are you, Lord? And the answer was a bombshell. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that point on, Saul the persecutor became Paul the apostle or messenger of Jesus Christ. It cost him everything, status, wealth, health, convenience. Was it worth it? Well, if you were with us in our series earlier this year in Philippians, you'll know the answer. 25 years on, he writes this letter about profit and loss, he's weighing up the balance of 25 years of following Jesus. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. One young man went away sad. He gained the world but lost his soul. The other one became a follower of Jesus. He lost his life for Christ, but he gained his soul. That is the choice that faces all of us. And there is no half measure about this. Either Jesus is Lord and he's worthy of everything that we have or he's not. You can't sit on the fence. He's not one of the options. He's either who he claims to be or he's not. Let's pray together. Now as we bow in God's presence let's respond personally to what God may have said to us, maybe this morning you're not a Christian and you need to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. To admit your rebellion and seek the forgiveness that he alone offers. Maybe you're a Christian this morning and you've wandered away and your love is divided and you've loved other things. Not only more than Christ but alongside him the God who says you shall have no other rivals beside me. The Lord seeks that you might 
confess that as well and be restored to that exclusive relationship with him for which you were made for which you were redeemed